Welcome to Teachings and Doctrines of the Book of Mormon podcast class. This is class number nine, where we take one more week on the war chapters. The war that is a symbol of the war that began in heaven, a war that we, the Latter-day Saints, must win. We must be victorious in the war that began in heaven. We must conquer Satan and usher in the millennial day. If we won't do it, then the Lord will find another group of people who will do it because he is coming and we need to prepare this world for that coming. So in our quest to understand the messages of how to win the war in heaven, we look at the wonderful example of the stripling warriors, their preservation, their miraculous preservation in their war is a symbol of your miraculous preservation in our day, in your life, with so many forces trying to destroy you, your preservation will be as miraculous as was the stripling warriors if you do what they did. So we've been talking about the war chapters. And why are there war chapters? Why are there so many war chapters? I mean, it consumes the whole latter part of Alma, right? And we've seen that the symbolism is that the war begins when some, a man among the Nephites wants to be king, isn't chosen, gets offended, rebels, gathers his forces, and then fights against the people who didn't choose him to be their kings. that sound familiar? And now all of a sudden you begin to say, oh my goodness, I see what Mormons saw. I see that this is a pattern of the war that began in pre-mortal life, a war that continues here on earth. A war that is consuming so many people that I love. People in my own home. I watch Satan successful against them. And even though we studied it, we saw his strategy, right? What was his strategy? He doesn't get people to come down from the mountain one fell swoop. He simply says, just come down a little. And there it starts. And I've watched people I dearly love end up at the bottom of the mountain, conquered by a foe they never said would conquer them. I look around, I just see so many struggles, so many people failing in this war. Have you ever felt it's unwinnable? There is no way we as a church and I individually can be victorious in this war. Ashley went to the temple today and I asked her, what, the, what was the message you got? And she came out saying, Heavenly Father has a plan for me. Have you ever doubted that? Have you ever wondered how in the world? Have you ever gone on a zillion dates and said, I'm not going to find anyone? Has anyone in here starting to lose faith that you will actually find an eternal companion? because I'm not seeing very many possibilities that I would choose today. Does it seem unwinnable? Do you ever have the moments where you say, I just don't know how I or we are going to be victorious. The foe is so powerful and there are so many of them. How in the world are we going to win? Now that leads us to a story within the story. In the middle of this war chapter comes the Book of Mormon's greatest miracle. Does it strike you odd that the Book of Mormon isn't filled with a lot of miracles? I mean, miracles of conversion. Okay, set that aside. But <clears throat> you can't turn a page in the Bible without reading about some miracle pretty much, right? How many miracles are in the New Testament? How many miracles are in the Old Testament? I mean, we have people walking on water and parting the sea and Joshua holding back the sun. We have Elijah saying, bathe seven times and leprosy disappears. We have Elisha saying, pour it into a, a, a jar and it will multiply. We have Jesus taking five loaves of bread and two small fishes and feeding 5,000 and getting 12 baskets of leftovers. There is miracle after miracle after miracle in the, in the New Testament. What are the Book of Mormon miracles? Does that strike you as odd that an entire book of Scripture doesn't include a lot of miracles? Because the reality is it has one miracle repeated several times. 
And I think that's on purpose. Not God hasn't stopped being a God of miracles. I think the miracle of the Book of Mormon is emphasizing the miracle you most need in your life. The miracle you need is the miracle of preservation. What are the miracles of the Book of Mormon? Nephi before his brethren, touch me not. Abinadi before the priests of Noah, touch me not. Samuel up on the wall. Every miracle in the Book of Mormon, almost every single miracle is a miracle of what? What's the miracle? Preservation. Now, tell me what the Book of Mormon is trying to say to those of you who live in this world where we seem outnumbered and hope seems so lost. If you've ever dated and said, I'm never going to find an eternal companion. If you've ever looked, how in the world am I going to get a career? If you've ever looked at home prices and said, how am I going to buy a house? I bought my house in 2001 for $125,000. No, no, no. It was more. But it's now worth $850,000. If I had to buy my house today, it would be $850,000. And I'm thinking, how are my children going to have houses? I worry, how are you guys going to do anything? And yet, what's the miracle of the Book of Mormon? Over and over and over again. What's the miracle of the Book of Mormon? Preservation against all odds. Now, what... Is the what is most likely the most convincing of those miracles? Now tell me what is a human stripling? I think you know what a plant stripling is. What would you guess a human stripling is? The only other time that word appears in the Bible is to describe pipsqueak David. He was a stripling. What's a stripling? A kid. We estimate that the stripling warriors were probably, anyone a guess on an age? What would you say is a stripling human? 12? 12, 13, 14, going up against the Lamanite army. I hope, I don't know if you've ever pondered that matchup. 12 year olds with swords they could probably barely hold up against the Lamanite army, seasoned. And what was the body count? Turn with me to Alma chapter 57. Let's be very clear. How many stripling warriors should have been slaughtered? Honestly, when, Al when Ammon, where, where Helaman starts to count them, what does he expect? How many of them did he expect to survive? And when he asks them, are you willing to fight? What did they expect? What, there's kind of a somber moment. Will you turn around and fight? What did they say? What did they seem to expect? No one expected them to survive. I don't think Helaman expected them to survive. And I don't think the stripling warriors expected themselves to survive. So turn with me to Alma 57. Book of Mormon. Alma 57. All right, when he, farts, when he finally starts counting, when he counts, let's start in verse, well, let's, get, let's be honest, verse 24. We got to read verse 24. Now, let me remind you, here's the setting. We'll get to this in just a minute, but here's the setting. Do you remember our point last week is once you lose a fortified city, you will pay dearly to win it back. Your morality, your marriage, your family is like a fortified city. And once you lose a fortified city, you will pay dearly to get it back. So how are they going to get it back? So they once, there were cities that were Nephite fortified cities that they've now lost. So now I have a Lamanite fortified city. So the plan is the stripling warriors are going to run in front and see if they can coax the Lamanites out. Antipas is going to come from behind. 
And then they're going to turn and see if they can take the Lamanites. The only way the Laman, the stripling warriors possibly survive is if Antipas does a whole lot before these guys get slaughtered. Well, it works just perfectly, right? The stripling warriors go passing in front. The Lamanites come after chasing them. The, lame, the stripling warriors are running. And all of a sudden, the Lamanites stop. And Helaman says, what do you want to do? Two possibilities. What are the possibilities? One possibility is Antipas caught up with them and they are fighting in the back. And if we don't turn around, they'll slaughter Antipas. So we need to turn around and fight them so that we can win. What's the other possibility? The Lamanites have figured out what we're doing and it's a trap. They've stopped waiting for the strip, the little kids to turn around. Let's slaughter the kids and then we'll turn around and slaughter Antipas. We don't know. What do you want to do? What's implied in that question? I don't know if you'll survive. I don't know if you'll survive. Are you willing? And what do they say? Bring it on. So now let's count them up. Okay, the battle's over. I think Helaman expected them all to be dead. Verse 24, it came to pass that after the Lamanites had fled, I immediately gave orders that my men who had been wounded should be, so some survived, that's good news, taken from among the dead and caused that their wounds should be dressed. And it came to pass that there were 200 out of my 2,060. You got room, Savannah? I got two here. I can sit anywhere. Okay. I just want you to be able to sit. I just want you to be able to sit by this lovely young lady. So. Okay, it came to pass that there were more than 200 out of my 2,060 who had fainted because of the loss of blood. Is it going to cost you dearly this battle? Yes. Nevertheless, according to the goodness of God and our great astonishment and also to the joy of our whole army, there was not one soul of them who did perish. Neither was there one soul among them who had not received many wounds. Now their preservation was astonishing to our whole army that they should be spared while there was how many losses? So here's Antipas and his army. How many losses were there on this side? A thousand of Antipas's army was slaughtered. How many of those kids were slaughtered? Not one. How do you explain that? There is no explanation. And so Helaman writes, their preservation was astonishing to our whole army that they should be spared while there was a thousand of our brethren who were slain. And we do justly ascribe it to the miraculous power of God because of their exceeding faith in which they had been taught to believe. Now, why is Mormon putting this story in the Book of Mormon? Mormon who's seen our day. Why is Mormon putting this story in the Book of Mormon? What's he saying? Do you see it yet? What do you see? This is not their story. Whose story is this? This is your story. The odds of succeeding today seem bleak. The odds of successfully navigating mortality, finding an eternal companion, raising a righteous family seem bleak. And this story is written in the Book of Mormon to say what? Their preservation is a model of your preservation. Ready? I'm going to testify with every ounce of my soul. Your preservation in your day will be as miraculous as theirs if you are one of them. I think this story is written in the Book of Mormon to say that's normal. 
This is not. Your preservation will be as miraculous today as theirs was if you are what they were. Now, furthermore, let me add one thing. I believe this. will someday be true of you. This is why I changed careers. This is why I am what I am and do what I do. Because I know something about you. Someday it is going to be said, it was these, these, to whom we owe this great victory. I love Russell Nelson. I love the Quorum of the Twelve, but it is not the Quorum of the Twelve that's going to win the victory. And Satan knows it. I don't think he's tempting Russell Nelson that much. I think he's trying and has just given up. I think he's coming after who he knows the real victory is. It is not Russell Nelson that will win the victory. It is not the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, and I don't think it's my generation anymore. I think I'm in the presence of those to whom we will someday say they're the ones that won the victory. So every doubt you have about your future, every doubt about possibly succeeding and being successful in this day and age, you need to hear this story. If you are what they were, your preservation will be as miraculous as theirs was. And it will be your victory. So what makes you a modern day stripling warrior? Let me suggest three. I think we could find a whole lot. If you go back and study the stripling warriors, you can make a large list, but let me just emphasize three. As someone who has taught for for 30 years and watched modern day stripling warriors and those who really aren't, I will tell you I have identified what I think makes the difference. Here are the ones that make you a stripling warrior today. Here are the ones that specifically made them stripling warriors. Ready? Allow me to give you my list. And I'd be fascinated if you give me your list someday. But what makes you a modern day stripling warrior? Let's jump back to chapter 53 where they're introduced. So do you remember the problem? We've lost our fortified cities and we've got to win them back and we don't have the manpower to do it. We're in Alma. Alma 53. So we've lost our fortified cities. We don't have the manpower to win them back. We're going to lose this war. The Lamanites outnumber us. We don't have the strength. So the anti-Nephi-Lehi's who swore an oath never to touch their swords again are tempted to join the cause. And Helaman says, no, we'd rather die than have you break your oath. And then in that moment, we get the stripling warrior stepping forward. Verse 16, Alma chapter 53, verse 16. May I suggest that this is the first one. This is what makes you a stripling warrior. It came to pass that they had many sons. I love that phrase. They had many sons who had not entered into a covenant that they would not take their weapons of war to defend themselves against their enemy. Therefore, I think this is the phrase. I think you become a stripling warrior when it's your idea. They did assemble themselves. It was their idea. When is it going to be your idea? Now, I don't mean this to come across negatively. Don't take this negatively. But this building, the whole institute program, was put on by adults hoping you'd join it. And that's great. I love that. I love that the adults are making things available to the youth. But when are the youth going to say, we're on, we're, we're, this is our idea? What is going to be your idea? When is it your cause? 
When do you assemble yourself? When do you say, this is me? And it's not mom, it's not dad, it's not tradition, it's not what my ancestors did. This is me joining the cause. I'm all in. And if everyone else I know leaves, I don't. That's the moment you become a stripling warrior. I'm in. Against all odds, I'm in. And they assembled themselves together. Let me give you an example. I don't think you guys were old enough. Anyone, how old were you when President Hinckley died? That was way too long ago, right? Do you remember? I was teaching seminary when President Hinckley died. President Hinckley was so beloved. Man, did we love President Hinckley. He died. He died in the middle of January. It was a cold, miserable, blizzardy day. And news got out that President Hinckley had passed away. And all of a sudden, the youth of the church started to pass around, let's dress up tomorrow. It was their idea. Didn't come down from church headquarters. The youth said to themselves, let's dress up tomorrow. And they all decided on their own to wear their Sunday clothes to school the next day. And it was a blizzard. It was a miserable day. And they all came wearing their Sunday clothes in honor of the prophet that they loved. And I just sat back and I thought, that's what I want to see. They assembled themselves. And that's the moment. Let me show you one of my absolute favorite scriptures. And I hope and pray this I think this is what makes you a stripling warrior. Go to 2 Nephi chapter 33. 2 Nephi 33 verse 6. And tell me what word stands out. This is why I love hanging around you guys, because this is what I sense. I glory in plainness. I glory in truth. I glory in... Do you see it? My Jesus. Tell me what that one word does. And and that's that I think that's what makes you a stripling warrior. He's not the Savior. He's not mom's Jesus. He's my Jesus. I know him and I have a personal relationship with him. I'm in. And if everyone else around me walks away, I don't, because he's my Jesus. And I'm connected to him. I just, I find that phrase common among all the great authors of the Book of Mormon. So there's Nephi who wrote a big chunk of the Book of Mormon, right? Let me show you Mormon. Turn to 3 Nephi chapter 5. 3 Nephi chapter 5. It's that same idea. Look at this one. This is Mormon. Mormon who wrote an incredible book and didn't write himself in it. Because you don't read the glory of Mormon. And yet you do, right? It's an incredible, Mormon's an incredible story. But look at this one. Verse 20. I am Mormon. And I have reason to bless my God and my Savior. Do you sense that? He's my Jesus. I have a personal relationship with him. And I can't walk away from that. Remember when Joseph Smith said, I knew it and I knew that he knew it and I couldn't deny it. Neither dared I do. I can't walk away. How about Moroni? So we got Nephi, we got Mormon. How about Moroni? Turn to Ether chapter 12. This is a beautiful little scene. He doesn't say the same phrase, but it sure creates the same message. Uh, Ether chapter 12 where he's so worried that the Gentiles are going to reject what he's written and they're just not going to like it. At the end of that, he says, the Lord says to him, well, let's read 37. If they have not charity, it mattereth not. For thou hast been faithful, wherefore thy garment shall be made clean. And then he says, verse 38, I, Moroni, bid farewell unto the Gentiles and also unto my brethren whom I love until we shall meet before the judgment seat of Christ where all men shall know that my garments are not splotted with your blood. 
and then shall ye know that I have seen Jesus and that he hath talked with me face to face. Verse 41, I would commend unto you to seek this Jesus. Do you sense the personal nature there? Step number one is, it's my idea. This is me. I'm in. They did assemble themselves. They did assemble themselves. What if I didn't hold class next week? What would you do? What if the Institute stopped organizing classes for you? What would you do? What if your bishop stopped having sacrament meeting for you? What would you do? Do you see the idea? I'm thrilled that so many people did so many things for me and gave me opportunities and opened the door. But the question is, what are you doing? What are you doing? It's got to be it's got to be your idea. The moment it's your idea, my temple, my scriptures, my book, my savior, you become a stripling warrior. Let me give you one more example. Spencer W. Kimball. Anyone know the connection? Heber C. You've heard of Heber C. Kimball, right? His son was Andrew. His son was Spencer. So what generation church member is he? Third generation. Okay, Spencer Kimball grew up in Thatcher, Arizona. I lived in Thatcher for eight years. I loved it. So I really wanted to find where this story, story occurred, and I think I did. It, President Kimball doesn't say. But let me tell you in his own words, the moment I think Spencer W. Kimball beca became a stripling warrior. Now, he's speaking as an adult. I don't think the 12, I don't think the kid Spencer would tell the story this way. So this is the grown-up Spencer telling the story. So bear with the language. But he said, when I was a youngster, a stirring challenge came to me that moved me not a little. I cannot remember who issued the challenge nor under the circumstances it came. I only remember that it struck me like a bolt out of the blue heavens. He heard an unknown voice say when he was a kid, the Mormon church has stood its ground for the first two generations. But wait till the third and fourth and succeeding generations come along. The first generation fired with a new religion developed a great enthusiasm for it. Surrounded with bitterness and a calumny of a hostile word, persecuted from pillar to post, they were forced to huddle together for survival. There was good reason to expect they would live and die faithful to their espoused cause. The second generation came along, born to enthusiasts, zealots, devotees. They were born to men and women who had developed great faith and were used to hardships and sacrifices for their faith. They inherited from their parents and soaked up from religious homes the stuff of which the faithful are made. They had four full reservoirs of strength and faith upon which to draw. But wait until the third and fourth generations come along said the cynical voice. The fire will have gone out. The devotion will have been diluted. The sacrifice will have been nullified. The world will have hovered over them and surrounded them and eroded them. The faith will have been expended and the religious fervor leaked out. Now, how many people do you know and love that you would say, yep, that's exactly what's happening? They've lost the faith of their fathers. They've lost the zeal of their fathers. It's too common, and they've walked away. It's exactly what he postulated would happen. Now that day, guess what Spencer W. Kimball realized? That day I realized I was a member of the third generation. Now watch the stripling warrior come out. That day I clenched my growing fists and gritted my teeth and made a firm commitment to myself that here was one third generation who would not fulfill that dire prediction. What did he say to himself that day? I'm all in. I'm in. And he jumped. That's number one. 
Thoughts? How many people have you seen are doing it for something, some other reason than that? Tradition, culture, Now, how, how long is that going to hold you in the heat of today's battle? So there's number one. Let's go back to Alma chapter four, 53. Let's do number two. So we can't just send a bunch of 12-year-olds into battle, right? Even if they did assemble themselves together. They got a great little team. We're going to go send them into battle. No, no, no. What do they need? Tell me what these 12 and 13-year-olds need. Oops. I lost it. Hold on. I went to ether. Alma 53. Again, verse 19. Now tell me what they need. <clears throat> now I love this phrase. They've never been a disadvantage. But now all of a sudden they became a great advantage. But tell me what they need. Can't just send a bunch of 12 year olds into battle. Tell me what they need. They need a leader. Now, I'm sorry, but who's the obvious leader? Not Helaman. Not Helaman, okay? You're going to choose a basketball coach. You don't choose the music teacher, right? Who's the most obvious leader to lead them into battle? Moroni or Tiancum. I'd follow Tiancum anywhere. There were tremendously military-minded, brilliant military men, and they didn't choose them. They did not choose. Now, tell me about Helaman as a war captain. Tell me about Helaman as a war captain. Do you remember that great moment? Okay, so they've run in front of the building. The Lamanites have come out. They're being chased. All of a sudden, the Lamanites stop. Is it a trap, or has Antipas caught up? And it's the, it's the time, it's time for Helaman to make this brilliant military decision. And what does he say? What do you guys want to do? <laughs> Is he a brilliant military mind? Is he a great singer? Is he a good athlete? Can he throw a ball through a hoop really well? There's a lot of obvious people to follow today. They chose to follow someone different. Who did they take into battle? Not a warrior, not a military man, not popular with the people kind of person. Who did they take into battle? A prophet. You become stripling warrior if you assemble yourselves and then you choose the prophet as your leader. I choose the prophet. That was a critical decision. Now, I don't mean, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but here was Antipas, here are the Lamanites, here's the stripling warriors, right? How many died over here? A thousand. How many died over here? Zero. Moroni, Tiancum, will get you so far. A prophet is a totally different thing. And you've got to choose who's your leader? Who's your leader? And the moment you say, my leader is a prophet, there's going to be some challenges that come with that, that decision, won't it? There's going to be tests of faith. But look at the body count. Look what choosing a prophet is going to do versus if you choose to follow someone else. Now, what kind of relationship do they have? Go to chapter 56. Jump to 56. Let's see what kind of relationship the prophet and the stripling warriors had with each other. I've got a marked here better, so I'm going to go here. Let's, tar let's look at prophet to youth. Prophet to stripling warriors. Ready? Whoops, 56. 
What does he call them? Verse 10, tell me what he calls them. My 2,000 sons. Verse 17, sons of mine. Verse 27, my 2,000 sons. Verse 30, my little sons. Verse 39, my little sons. Verse 44, my sons. Now verse 46, my sons. Now, have you watched President Nelson speak to the youth? What's he saying? What has he said? I love what he said recently. He says, I'm, I'm in my 90s. I don't spend time doing things that don't matter. And then he looked at you and said, you matter to me. I'm spending my time with the people who matter the most. You matter to me. Tell me what he was calling you. My sons and my daughters. Now, what do they call him in verse 46? Now, my invitation is, do you have that relationship with the prophet? Can you have that kind of relationship with a prophet you've never met? Can you develop a relationship with the prophet to the point where he's father? And I choose, I choose to follow a prophet. And that's that tender, sweet relationship. Now, you're going to have a challenge in the next couple of years because guess what? You're going to lose your prophet. I lost mine. Spencer W. Kimball was the, the, the prophet of my youth. I loved him. Oh, my gosh. When I still, to this day, when I say Spencer W. Kimball, I hold my hand over my heart. Spencer W. Kimball. And then he died. And his replacement was no Spencer W. Kimball. And Ezra Taft Benson was, he was different. My 19th birthday, my bishop gave me his ticket to general conference. So it was Saturday, it was a morning session and I went to general conference. And I, it was in the tabernacle back in the olden days. And there's a little hallway where they walk in. Here's where they sit, there's a little hallway I was sitting right there and Ezra Taft Benson started walking down that hallway. Now, when the prophet walks in, you all stand, right? But no one could see him yet and I could see him walking. So I had several seconds as I watched him walk down that hallway and all of a sudden, it's just like this rush of, he's, he's my prophet. And all of the love that I had for Spencer W. Kimball just got wrapped around Ezra Taft Benson. And I loved him. I would have called him father. He signed my mission call. And I'm thrilled that he did. Because I love Ezra Taft Benson. And pretty soon, guess what? Your prophet's going to die. And then the question is, do you, who do you choose after that? If you choose the prophet, I guarantee your preservation will be miraculous. Now, let me give you one more. And this needs to come with a human element because I think we could take this too far and beat ourselves up. And so take this with the human ele element that I think is implied. But go to chapter 57. Once you choose to follow a prophet, now what do you do? It's really simple. Again, take it with a grain of, take it with a human element. But verse 21, once you choose to follow a prophet, now what do you do? What do you do, Liam? What do you do? You obey and observe to perform every command with Exactness. Now, again, I would say put a human element on that because we're human beings and we're going to not be perfect. But I'm going to do what he asks. I'm going to take it very personal. I'm in. I choose him. And I'm going to obey with exactness. 
can I ask? Name one thing your prophet has asked that you obeyed with exactness. Anyone willing to share? Now, I'll tell you what I do. I keep, uh, you can tell I'm a notebook guy. I have a notebook with every one of them. And when, when President Nelson speaks, this is what I do. And every time he says something like, I plead, I put his picture next to it. I plead. Over here he said, my plea. President Nelson doesn't command, but he does say a lot of things like, I urge. I urge. Or he'll say, may you focus. May you. But to me, that's the command. Every time he says, I urge, may you, I plead, that's the command I'm going to take to it with exactness. And I think the idea here is, do you know his words? Do you love his words? Are you following it? Are you in love with this relationship you have with the prophet? Is he your prophet? Is he the leader you've chosen? And do you have that father-child relationship with him? And when he says, I urge, do you sit up and say, okay, that's what I'm going to do. Give me one thing your prophet has asked that you've tried to obey with exactness. Anyone? Shelby. Using the correct name of church. Using the correct, and that's hard to do, right? It's so hard, especially in a quick, casual conversation. I belong to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Easier just to say, I'm a Mormon. I love it. Give me another one. Give me something a prophet has asked, and you said, you know what? I'm going to follow. That's my prophet. I'm in, and I'm going to obey with exactness. And again, that's what I mean. Let's put the human element. I really want us to always put that human element. But what's the, I'm trying to be as exact as I can. Yes. He has pled with us to speak kindly. Have you forgotten that when you're on social media or driving in your car or at a restaurant or something? It's amazing. To, I serve on a board of education and I watch people come unglued that I know are covenant members of the church and I'm just thinking, I appreciate, but that, that wasn't kind. Obey with exactness. Give me a couple more. Tell me what you're proud. Charlie? Um, yes. And again, it just, I love, uh, how many of these? Savor these sacred verses. I also invite you. I plead with you. Whatever question or problems you have, the answer is always found in the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. Learn more about his atonement, his love, his mercy, his doctrine, his restored gospel, his healing and progression. Savannah. This was a few years ago, but the when he talked about like the hope of Israel is like participating in the gathering of Israel and you know doing missionary work. Yep. This side of the world and the other side. Yep. Lean in. I love that he talked about identity. How do you what is your identity? And then he said, You've got three critical identities. Again, he probably more than you have access to your prophet more than I did mine. You have access to everything that he said in your pocket. Now, again, let me promise, the hope of that life you love, the hope of the life you're hoping to have in spite of all the forces against you, their preservation is an example. And I testify, your preservation in this day and age will be as miraculous as theirs if you are what they were. And what they were, it was their idea. 
They chose to follow a prophet, even though that was not the the most popular choice of who to lead them. And they obeyed his word with exactness. That will preserve you. Now, let me just throw just a a few more in, just since we've got, go, go back to chapter 53. I think those three are the ones worth talking about. But if we have a couple minutes, let me throw one more word in. And it's appropriate to do it this year that we studied the New Testament. Back to chapter 40 or 53, verse 19, after they chose a prophet, other than their age, what is the first description of them? Other than their age, they were exceedingly young. Other than that, what is the first description of the stripling warriors? They were valiant for courage. They were valiant for courage. Let me, there it is right there in verse 20. They were exceedingly valiant for courage. If I were to take one moment and show you what courage isn't, let me show you what courage isn't. To define what the stripling warriors were, let me point out what what they weren't. I think the biggest coward in the scriptures is Pontius Pilate. Now, the Jews cannot execute one of their own. The the Romans will not allow them to exercise capital punishment. If they're going to put Jesus to death, they have to have Rome do it. They have to come up with a reason for Rome to execute him. They have convicted him of blasphemy, which is the only sin he couldn't commit because he was the son of God. But they have to get the Romans to think he's guilty of a law a Roman law and put him to death. So Pontius Pilate interviews Jesus and says what? I find no fault in him. Anyone know the next two words? At all. I find in him no fault at all. Meaning not only is he not guilty of death, he's not guilty of anything. Now tell me, what should an elected government official do when an accused criminal is brought before him and I come to find that he's innocent? I know he's innocent. Tell me what an elected official should do. He should drop the charges and set him free. So the right thing to do is to set him free. The problem is Pilate wants to be liked. Now, sometimes you can be right and liked. Not often. But sometimes, in this case, you cannot be right and liked. You cannot set him free and be liked. If he sets him free, he's going to be hated. So he wants to be liked. So tell me what we do when we can't be right and liked. We start to compromise a little bit. Can I be a little less right so that you like me? So instead of setting free an innocent man, who, by the way, his wife comes to him and says, have nothing to do with this innocent man. I've seen many things in dreams. You better set him free. So instead of setting him free, guess what Pilate decides to do? Oh, you're from Galilee. He sends him to Herod. He sends him to Herod. Let's go someone else to be the bad guy. I don't want to be the bad guy. And he sends him to Herod. It doesn't work. So he tries something else. He keeps compromising. I, I, I want to be liked, and so I'll be a little less right so that I can be liked. I know what I'll do. You Jews have a tradition. I'll condemn an innocent man that will please you, and then I'll let him free. That'll please me. And so he's willing to condemn an innocent man to be liked. Now tell me what, once you start compromising, is evil going to be satisfied with your compromises? So what do they say? We want Barabbas. We want Barabbas. So then what does he do? He scourges him. He scourges him. He puts him, he makes him a bloody mess. And then what does he say? He brings him out before the people to say what? Can I be done? Is this enough? I don't want to kill him. Can I be done? 
His conscience is searing. So why doesn't he stop? He wants their approval. Now, does he get their pity when he brings out the bloody mess? No, we want him crucified. So Pilate tries one more thing. He uses a Jewish tradition. I'm washing my hands. Will you, will you be responsible for this man's death? I'm letting you make the call. Will you execute this man? I'm not going to. You have to. And they said yes. Do you see what he's trying to do? Now, if you ask me to define what it means to be exceedingly valiant for courage, it means when I can't be right and liked, I choose right every time. Here's the funny thing is, he wanted to be right and liked. And in the end, what did he end up being? Neither liked nor right. And isn't that the case? If you compromise trying to be liked, you end up neither liked nor right. So why not be right? That is a stripling warrior attribute. You'll find more. You'll find more. Leave you with my witness, with all my soul. I'm gambling, and it's not a gamble. I put my career behind my belief in who you are. I know that someday the church is going to say it was them. It was the youth. It was the youth who rallied and said, this is ours. This is our fight. Chose a prophet and obeyed his words with exactness. I testify that if you will do that against all odds, your preservation will be miraculous. Your life will be glorious. Even though you may not see it as a possibility today, I testify that your preservation will be as miraculous in this day as theirs was in theirs. If you will be what they were. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Thank you for joining us for Teachings and Doctrines of the Book of Mormon podcast class. This has been class number nine regarding the stripling warriors. Would you ponder this week and discuss with a friend or with me or with the class what you now see as the requirements to be a modern day stripling warrior? What might qualify you today for miraculous preservation in the war that wages today? What are you going to do to become a stripling warrior?